0: Hello everybody, I hope that you're all doing well. The new year is upon us and I just wanted to say that I hope you all have a great year. And what a great way to kick it off with some good old scary stories. So let's get into it as we drift further into Mr. Creep's mind. I'm not celebrating 2024 because something horrible is going to happen. Written by Beardify and Weird Bryce Guy. i don't want to be telling you this if i had a choice i would take this knowledge to the grave with me the facts are as horrible as they are hard to understand so i'll get right to it there isn't going to be any year of 2024 there wasn't a 2023 or a 2022 either but i'll get to that later if you're like me you're probably wondering who is this guy and what right does he have to make such insane claims? I'm a scientist and it's my job to ask those kinds of questions. Tough questions that can't be answered without testing an irrefutable proof. My mentor Dr. Fallow used to say, In God we trust, all others bring data. And until today that was my philosophy as well. Our research at Andros Labs focused on the gravitational identity of time. You see, every day, every hour, every millisecond carries its own unique time signature. We used a lot of high-tech equipment, but the most important was essentially a glorified spreadsheet. That was where we entered the time signatures and searched for patterns and data reaching back over 20 years. Only Dr. Fallow was supposed to have complete access to our system, but that changed a few hours ago when he was unexpectedly called away for a family emergency. There was still work to be done, however, and I was the only one in the lab that he trusted enough to do it. At first, I thought Dr. Fallow had made the right choice by trusting me with his access code, but later, alone in the laboratory with only the glow of the emergency lights for company, I wasn't so sure. I had always wondered about the restricted files in our system, the ones that only Dr. Fallow himself could see, and I knew that I would never have another chance to find out what they contained. By the time that I had finished my work, I couldn't hold back my own curiosity any longer. Even though I knew that no one was in the laboratory with me, I looked over both shoulders before opening the files. I had expected to find something mind-blowing, maybe even scandalous, but all I found was another set of spreadsheets. They were identical to the ones that I was used to, but with one minor difference. The time signatures were unchanged since May of 2016. It wasn't long before I realized that this was the real data. Dr. Fallow had been manipulating our instruments to create false readings and he had been doing it for years. But why? I couldn't get my head around it. And besides, if his numbers were true, time had stopped advancing seven years ago. The door slammed. Dr. Fallow swept in, shaking slush from his umbrella. He muttered something about his youngest son having an allergic reaction and asked me how my work was going. But I wasn't listening. I was too busy trying to cover my tracks. I should have known better. Dr. Fallow recognized the kid caught in the cookie jar look on my face. And in five quick steps, he was looking over my shoulder. There was no way to hide what I was doing. My heart sank. This would mean my job, maybe even criminal charges. Dr. Fallow put a hand on my shoulder. He told me that I looked tired and that I should go home and get some rest. I couldn't believe it. I had been accessing classified information and he was just going to let me off the hook. The stern old man tightened his grip on my shoulder. His deep blue eyes were trying to warn me about something but I couldn't tell what. Not right away. It was only when I stood up from the office chair that I noticed the figure standing in the corner of the room. in the dim lights of the laboratory who could say how long it had been standing there watching me. When I looked at it, head-on, it seemed like just an ordinary man in a black business suit. But out of the corner of my eye it appeared as something different entirely. Something inhuman and wrong. Something with mottled grey skin and a face that was featureless, apart from a gaping, toothless mouth. Something with too many fingers. Something that seemed to slither rather than walk when it moved. I opened my mouth to scream, but Dr. Fallow cut me off. He opened the lab door with a slam and suggested that we walk out to our cars together. It was taking all of his strength to keep his voice from shaking. I couldn't resist looking over my shoulder at the figure in the corner as he left, but when I did, it was gone. It hadn't been just my imagination. Dr. Fallow had seen it too, I was sure of it, but he was keeping his mouth shut tight. I had never seen anyone so afraid. Dr. Fallow glanced at each lightless office and empty corridor that we passed as though he expected some unspeakable creature to reach out and drag him inside. And when we reached the parking lot, he climbed into his snow-covered car like a condemned man, barely even wiping the windshield before he drove off. He still hadn't spoken a word to me, and I had an awful feeling that I would never be seeing him again. I was left alone in the laboratory parking lot, or was I? Reaching out for my own car door, I felt a presence behind me. I was sure that if I turned, the figure in the black suit would be there, mere inches behind me, ready to wrap its thin fingers around my throat. Of course, when I did spin around, there was nothing but falling snow. Still, I couldn't shake the feeling that it was there, just behind the corners of my vision. I told myself that it was just fear and stress, that Dr. Fallow's paranoia was affecting me as well, but I didn't really believe it. Even once I got back home behind a locked door with a warm cup of tea in my hands, my heartbeat still hadn't slowed down. Time was repeating itself. It should have been impossible, but the data was airtight. Suddenly, I remembered Ted Wu. Ted was an acquaintance from my graduate program. A big, sleazy guy who was always surrounded by the odor of weed, Cheetos, and some other nastier smell that I couldn't identify. He bragged that he used the dark web a lot. None of us wanted to think about why. And that he had created a hidden forum there. A place where scientists could share their findings anonymously with one another. Well, Ted disappeared a few years later... But his dark web, a free speech forum for scientists. It was still up and running. If there was anybody who could explain the anomaly that I encountered, that was where I would find them. Sharing my discovery would be a breach of Dr. Fallow's trust, but I had to know. The feeling that some sort of presence was in the room, with me, kept getting stronger and stronger. I had an awful suspicion that if I didn't uncover the truth soon... I would be insane by the morning. I was just about to hit submit when I felt eight long, multi-jointed fingers close around my head. Its vice-like grip twisted around me and I found myself face to face with the thing from the laboratory. Up close, the illusion of a dull man in a black suit fell away completely. It hurt to look at, and not just because of its slimy, mottled gray skin and extra limbs. It was how it blinked and shifted, like it was existing in more than three dimensions at once. I shut my eyes tight, but I couldn't seal out the noise that its mouth made. A dry, raspy sound like wind through dead grass. It was speaking to me, but I couldn't understand its words until it wormed one of its cold, slimy fingers into my ear. I squirmed at the invasive sensation But seconds later, something clicked in my brain and I could understand what it was saying. Although I would have preferred not to. Are you sure you want an answer to your question? Really sure? I screamed. It tightened its grip until I thought my head was going to crack like an egg. The pain was unbearable. Go on, primate. Tell us what you think you know. The years, the days, they're repeating themselves, why? A sickening screech sound reverberated in my skull. I think it was laughing. (laughs) So we can feed. We loop you through time again and again, making the simulation just a little worse each time. We're going to squeeze the delicious pain and fear from your simple primate brains until there's nothing left. Please... I whispered, don't kill me. Kill you? You mean right now, whatever for. We have all eternity to kill you as many times as we wish. No, you have a different purpose. You're going to share the truth with your fellow primates. We would like to see how they'll handle it at this stage of the simulation. Its mouth curled into an awful imitation of a smile. We're scientists, too, you know. And if I refuse, we could always drop you down a few levels in the simulation. Why don't you take a look at what's coming in a few of your so-called years and tell us what you think. A cold, dusty wind blasted my face. My eyes snapped open. I was laying inside a shattered concrete pipe. Greyish-white snow fell from the black sky overhead, but I could barely see it. There were no lights anywhere. I should have been worrying about where I was or who I was, or even when I was, but suddenly all I cared about was food and warmth. The hunger was like a fist crushing my gut. How long had it been since I had eaten? Days, weeks. I was too weak to do anything but crawl toward the end of the pipe. The air was so cold that it hurt. My clothes were just tattered rags, and when I tried to wrap them around me, I realized that my skin was covered in strange, pale lumps. Spurred on by a sick curiosity, I touched one and a jolt of pain shot up my arm. Something like a tiny, ink-colored worm had squirmed inside and then burrowed it deeper into my flesh. I grabbed my head in horror and then felt a chunk of hair slip out between my fingers. I was so cold, so hungry. It took ages to drag my skeletally thin body to the end of the shattered pipe, and even then I knew that I wouldn't have the energy to make it much further. There was no food, no shelter from the blistering cold, and it wasn't just the wind that was howling. Four blacker than black shapes were loping toward me through the darkness. I couldn't fully see their bodies, just their eyes, burning like hot coals in the darkness. They looked even hungrier than I was. The howls chilled my blood. I tried to scramble backwards, but they were faster than I was. A lot faster. I slipped in the gray sludge at the bottom of the pipe and heard a low growl behind me and then they lunged. I cried out as teeth sank into my leg. My eyes snapped open. I was back in my living room, my skull still trapped between those long nightmarish fingers. We can send you back to that moment whenever we wish, as often as we like. How many times do you think you can be eaten alive before your brain just shuts down completely? Would you like to find out? Or maybe we should drop you down a few levels further. What do you think? Do you still refuse to fulfill your purpose? It released me from its grip, allowing me to shake my head and puke my guts out on the carpet. That simulation of the future, or whatever it had been, had felt just as real as my daily life. The cold, starvation, and disease that I had suffered we all proof that the monstrous thing in front of me was telling the truth. We really do live in a simulation, a time loop. It becomes a little worse each year, so that they can feed on our fear and suffering. They've shown me the future and it has no bottom. As I said, I don't want to be telling you this. I wish I could forget it myself, but that isn't my purpose. I have to share what I've discovered, it's the only way I have to avoid the future for as long as possible. Make no mistake, they're here, and they're in control, and the future will be here sooner than you think. Earlier in the month I had agreed to help my friend set up her New Year's Eve party, and that I would by virtue of being there attend and hang out for a while. Even though I'm not exactly the most sociable person, it was at this party that a very strange and ultimately terrible thing happened to me. And while setting up her bar, a counter on which she had placed a few bottles of booze and several festive shot glasses, I heard a sort of pinging sound coming from her laundry room. We were the only ones in the house and she was in the garage looking for some candles that she had put away after Thanksgiving. To bring out during the countdown later in the night. Not recognizing the sound. I put aside the glasses that I had been stacking. And went to the laundry room. It was empty. In the sense that there wasn't anything notably out of order. But just as I was about to turn away. I saw a small black object. Nestled almost out of sight. Beneath a shirt and a laundry basket. I reached inside and pulled it out and heard it clearer now, that same pinging sound. It was a Bluetooth speaker. Just then, my friend's voice sounded from behind, nearly giving me a heart attack. I'm sorry, I really am, but you know how I am about prophetic stuff. And it's not like anyone but me would miss you anyway. I know you were probably joking, but I do remember you saying that you would like to be in one of those dying-so-others-may-live scenarios common in all those movies that you watch. Before I could even turn around to face her, she shut the door. The clicking, bolting sounds of some mechanism being locked in place signified that she had for some strange and ominous reason locked me inside her laundry room. Panic set in almost immediately as I realized that she was being serious about whatever dark plot she had decided to undertake. I then heard several voices begin to whisper in a language that sounded only loosely human, as if something from every civilized language had been taken and repurposed into some new universal tongue. Steeped in darkness, rendered immobile by my fright, I merely stood beside the washing machine as the incantory speech went on and on, and the voices grew deeper and graver. Finally, that mundane darkness took on a more palpable form, becoming almost sinister in nature. It enveloped me stamping out what little light there had been in the room, and in my heart. Though I couldn't see what was going on, I felt myself being spirited away from that room. And even then, I knew that the nature of my transportation was super-scientific, if not sorcerous. After a period of blind yet dizzying travel through some back-alley of space-time, the world around me resolved into being once more, though it was not any world in which I was familiar. I suddenly found myself standing in a massive dusty chamber, grey-walled and high-ceilinged. There were no signs of my friend, but like a dream speedily fading away upon wakening, I heard the voices of those unseen whispers quickly drawing away, at last becoming inaudible as the darkness finished clearing from my sight. Deeply disturbed and reaching new heights of fear with every dust-choked breath, I stumbled forward into the chamber and found myself staring into the depths of several corridors, their thresholds bearing no indication of what lied beyond. A massive cauldron of some dark, green-tinged metal sat in the nexus of the corridors, bubbling with some unwholesome substance. Its rim was coated with a dark yellow residue, practically seared into the very metal, and oily streaks trailed endlessly from the surface. The stuff inside boiled and gave off a stench as if burning tallow. Even though I couldn't see inside, I nonetheless felt sure that, given the evidence of what had leaked out, the undoubtedly yellowish contents were thick, slimy, and of a clumpy and waxy consistency. Something about it deeply disturbed me, even as the more animal parts of my brain sensed a certain palatability about the mysterious brew. There was an atmosphere of endless, ever ripening putrefaction about the structure, and there was even a visible cloud of sallow vapor that had risen and settled above the cauldron's surface. There was something profoundly offensive about it, revolting in a way that I can scarcely describe. It was obvious that it had not been created for the preparing of food suitable to human diets, Something else feasted upon the disgusting, molten contents. The walls nearest to the cauldron bore a slimy residue, which also dripped from the ceiling as if the environing surfaces were alive with a porous sickness. I gave the cauldron a wide berth, not wanting to inhale the gases. Several corridors spanned from this central node, each continuing on into an impenetrable gloom. I chose one at random and started down it, fearful more of the cauldron that I was leaving behind than the dark uncertainty towards which I was heading. There is a dim ambience about the corridor that I had chosen, one that gradually grew until it became startling for its audibility. It imparted a sense of great immensity, of spaces borderless and boundless, wherein echoed every drop of subsurface water, The air grew cleaner as I went, for which I was very thankful. I hadn't noticed before but I realized then that the atmosphere near the cauldron was stifling, almost nauseating. The dark, interminable hall was in comparison a much more respirable place to be. Eventually, after who knows how long, I came upon the end of the corridor. There is no threshold, and no door, merely a steep drop into cavernous nothing. The corridor simply ended at a void, though not one completely devoid of structure and form. It was more so a geologically sprawling chasm, impossibly far spanning and without ceiling, but having the rocky attributes common to caves of lesser degree. The ambience of vast hollowness resounded endlessly, like some world-eating horror letting out a perpetual yawn. There was light, though I couldn't figure out where it was coming from. It was simply there, dimly illuminating the ultra-mundane space. Movement to my right drew my attention away from the bottomless emptiness, and I turned toward it with a little relief. But that relief was quickly transformed into despair when I saw a man in a dust and grime-smeared blue suit put one foot over the edge of the floor having undoubtedly emerged from some other corridor that also led out onto this bizarre space. I began to shout, hoping to implore him to step back, but stopped when my voice echoed back to me distorted, warped by the titanic nothing. The man either did not hear my words or paid them no mind, because he continued his progress forward. Without a word, without turning toward me, he plunged headlong into that abyss. Helplessly, I watched him fall and my heart fell with him. There were no sounds of impact, no noises which might have given any indication that the man had reached the bottom, living or dead. Neither did he scream or cry out, as if he had long ago resigned himself to the fatal descent. Filled with a chilling dread, I stepped away from the threshold and turned back toward the place from which I had come, the massive cauldron of boiling fat. Back at the cauldron, I couldn't shake the feeling that there was something deeply wrong about the chasm, beyond the near unreality of its size and emptiness. My voice had sounded extremely strange when it reverberated back to me. It had sounded, for lack of a better word, unclean. As if the very notes had been taken and poisoned by something in the depths before being flung back at me, it was deeply unnerving to think about, and so I refocused my mind on escaping, even as the noisome funk of the cauldron threatened to send me retching onto the floor. Ignoring the putrid dankness, I again circumnavigated the cauldron, this time choosing a path opposite from the one that I had taken before. The corridors were virtually indistinguishable, the same dank walls, the same march towards darkness, the same lessening of the air's pollution by that sinister stew. And again I came to an abrupt end, beyond which lied that cavernous nothing. Terror trickled intravenously through me and I found myself suddenly fighting to stay calm, if not sane. Putting a hand on a wall to steady myself, I brought my breathing under control. This can't be real. This can't be happening. What's going on? But my voice came out shaky. I couldn't remember a time where I had been nearly as frightened as I was just then. And yet I sensed that there were more horrors to come, more terror to endure before I could escape. Just when I had brought my breathing and heart under control, I heard something that sent them into fits again. From far down the hall came a harsh sound, like shoes, a on the stone floor. It silenced me, the loudness of it, and it soon became obvious that the sounds were coming closer, approaching me with a grim steadiness. With only the void to my back, I had nowhere to go. After a few moments of mounting terror, a figure appeared in the gloom ahead a figure that was thankfully humanoid. But still, I felt myself tense up, sensing a subtle yet unmistakable quality of inhumanity about the person. Their feet dragged as they neared, as if they had long ago given up their mind or spirit. Finally, they stepped into the scope of the light emitted by the ominously luminous cavern, and I saw them in full detail. They were, as I had noticed, human, but the mortal kinship between us had ended there. It was a man who had at some point in the far distant past been a businessman of some kind. He wore a tattered suit and tie, not dissimilar to what the other man had worn, though plainly much older. His clothes were practically falling off his wiry frame and it faded to some nigh-indescribable color between gray and white. His face was outright ghoulish, the cheeks sunken and almost leprous with spots and abrasions. His scalp was bald and the oddly textured surface suggested that his hair had fallen out some time ago. I suspected that the cause of the deathly pallor in the pockmarked flesh was the emissions of the cauldron. The fumes, more than any passage of time, had probably caused this man's decrepit appearance. With eyes that seemed to have stared for too long on that, vascous commensity behind me, he looked at me, abruptly stopping his shuffled march. Ah, I see we've got another. What year are you, if you wouldn't mind me asking? I involuntarily leapt back, having been caught off guard by the man's scratchy and guttural voice. That voice I suspected hadn't been used in a long, long time. If a mummy could speak, that would be the voice that it would use. When I regained a little bit of my composure, a period during which he simply stared, I asked him to clarify the meaning of his question since I hadn't had any idea what he had meant. Ah, you are very new then. On my back, there's a number. Tell me what it is, will you? It's been so long I forgot it. Once you do that, I'll do the same for you, and then we'll both know from when we came. The man then turned around, showing me his back. The clothing between his shoulder blades had been burned away, revealing a broad patch of skin. Four numbers were blackly displayed there, embossed from the pale flesh as if they had been branded rather than written. Just as the man had said, the numbers made a year. 1982. More so out of shock than compliance with the man's wishes. I said the number aloud and he nodded in remembrance. Ah, that's right. I had just seen a movie. What was it? The something. I was with friends and we were leaving the theater. We had really enjoyed the film. We were talking about it and then darkness. I was selected. There had been mention of a prophecy, a necessary sacrifice. He turned back to me, his face streaming with tears. I wouldn't have thought it possible considering the desiccated state of his body. Go on then, turn around. Let's see your year. Still in shock at the absurdity of the situation, I wordlessly complied. My eyes stared ahead, not wanting to focus on any particular area of that illimitable vastness. Oh, you're quite far ahead of me. 2024. My body went rigid. Ahead of me, the cavernous darkness seemed to beckon me onwards. Somehow, I had been taken from the wrong time. In my timeline, it was still 2023, of that I was certain. The party hadn't even started yet, and yet seared into my back was the year 2024 which was, which should have been, hours away, the day it only just started. Through sheer force of will, I managed to relieve my body of its rigidity, turning around to face the man, though I couldn't help but feel the tremors that arose a moments later. As if I hadn't spoken in weeks, I stammered out that there had been some sort of mistake, that I was from the year 2023, not 2024. But the man's eyes, still glossy with tears, only stared. After a moment of silence, he motioned back, presumably towards the Noxus Cauldron. There are three choices left to those who have been transported here. The first, sacrifice themselves to the cauldron, thus ensuring that the year from which they hail will be free of major cataclysm. The second, wander these halls aimlessly in the hopes that they'll someday find escape, or that the system somehow changes or crumbles altogether. The third, reject the system entirely and jump into the abyss. What lies beyond is unknown, it could be death, a return to the past or the future. There is no basis of time here. All continuities past and present may coexist within these corridors for as long as they need be. The only thing that matters is the choice. So I suppose you could say, in essence, there are really only two options. Sink into the soup, or don't. And despite the small jest, there was no mirth in the man's expression bleakness and a sorrow immeasurable were etched into his sunken features. I've just recently made my choice. Having been here for a while, I can't really say, can I? I've come across people from a century in the future, so I can't very well base my time spent here on anything concrete. Hoping to find a flaw in the man's explanation of the system, And perhaps, a way to escape it. I countered him. Well, wouldn't that mean that it doesn't matter what we do, if people of the future exist? There obviously hasn't been a cataclysm awful enough to wipe out humanity as we know it. He smiled, though it was a sad and knowing smirk, as if he had been grimly expecting the question.
1: No, no, not at
0: all. As I said, time does not operate here. All years, all temporal potentialities arrive here at some point. There is no chronology, no order of being, I suspect that. If we had to be placed anywhere in a timeline, it would be at the beginning. I figure this place predates time itself. My mind reeled at the sheer cosmic unreality of the idea. I couldn't mentally grasp the concept of being some pretemporal entity of my choices determining a future yet recorded. Seeing my incredulity, the man smiled a sad smile again and placed a withered hand on my shoulder. Be well, traveler. May you find what peace you can in these corridors or the space beyond them. Walking past me, he stepped to the edge of the corridor. He seemed to settle himself, shrugging off the years that had accumulated atop his tired shoulders. I couldn't see his face, but I was sure that, in the end, he smiled. Not the sorrow-filled smile of before, but one of genuine happiness. Oh, and one last thing. There is a particular corridor with a special wall. On it are written the epitaphs of those who have come and gone. You may write one yourself if you wish. Some are merely a few lines, others are practically novels. Somehow those words find their way to the world, to the regular flow of time. Not always the exact year from which the author hailed, but close. Maybe it would bring you some peace to recount your tale or simply say goodbye. He then stepped forward, plunging himself into the yawning depths with a certain morbid stoicism. I turned away with tears in my eyes, even though I hadn't known the man for more than a few moments. Having seen the aged and decrepit state of that man, I determined then to promptly make my choice. I didn't want to linger in that dismal realm, doomed to roam the purgatorial labyrinth forever. But first, I would find the wall and I would write something on it. It was not difficult to locate the wall, in fact, it felt as if being made aware of it somehow brought it to the forefront of the maddening maze. Upon returning to the cauldron, I took another corridor at random and came across a wall down which spanned the inscriptions and scribblings of past wanderers whomever they had been. It would take more time than I would care to spend in this prison to share even a few of the self-written epitaphs. So, I will only say that a disconcerting amount were from years far in the past, nearer to the earliest civilizations of man than my own time. Some of the languages I recognized, others were of styles and lexicons beyond my knowledge. I would even dare to say that a few were of a linguistic order entirely inhuman. But the implications of such an idea are far too profound to be discussed with any substance here. It is on this wall beneath this infinitely gloomy phrase, I am a revenant doomed to wander and haunt the halls, denied both death and life, that I have written my tale. I have more or less detailed all that's happened to me, and I am now saying my goodbyes to the world, to my life, and to time itself. I don't know what fate awaits me upon submergence into that foul cauldron, but if what the man had said is true, then in doing so I'll prevent some awful cataclysm from happening. Then, it is only logical, only ethical that I do it. Heaven, hell, or a thoughtless infinitude, here I come." If you're not in 2024 right now, please don't read this. Close the app while you can, delete, just don't. You've been warned. Turn back and enjoy life while you still can. Again, if it is 2024 right now, you have a year to stock up and prepare for what's coming, or has already come. I'm sure you guys are aware of many of the viruses that have been going around. If you thought what had happened in the past was bad, then you should be prepared for what's coming next, which should appear towards the end of 2024 and early 2025. I'm not exactly sure about the current virus's origins, but I know that it is coming from the Southeast Asian area, potentially Vietnam or Thailand, but that's not important. Please start preparing when you first hear this. This virus is much, much scarier than what has already come. My heart is pumping as I write this. You never know how much time you have left. The virus, it has no name. No government has had the time to even come up with a proper name for it. We just call it the virus. Because honestly, no other virus matches up to this one. There are no notable symptoms besides one. Tiredness. Yeah, that's it. If you get tired, you would go to sleep and if you don't wake up, then that's it. You're gone, bye. Because of this, every time you sleep, you have a chance of death. There is no known cure, no vaccine or whatever to combat it. No one has had time to do anything. Everybody just tried to run, isolate themselves and say goodbye to their loved ones. Every day could be your last. Because of this, the entire human race is estimated to be extinct by 2030, unless somebody does something. Obviously, the first thing that should strike you is fear. It's the same for all of us. But I hope that this serves as a prior warning. If you want to survive, isolate, sleep before you feel tired, stock up on all the essential supplies... Once you've run out, you're gone. Stepping outside almost guarantees that you'll contract it. As I tell you this, I'm down to only one can of pasta. Please, I say again, be prepared. Don't end up like me. If you're a scientist or somebody that's in power or something, please try to be proactive and come up with a cure. I don't know much about this virus, but please, at least try. I hope you can save the human race in time. But now I feel tired. That's it. I don't feel scared anymore. I guess that I'll go to sleep. Say goodbye to my family, those that are still around. I always thought that I would be a great inventor. Well, I guess I was. I invented a way to access the internet, but a few years earlier. I'm not sure what happens now. Maybe I just caused a crack on the timeline or whatever. I don't care though, just please be prepared. Goodbye and goodnight. And happy 2024. Today's episode is sponsored by HelloFresh. Whether your resolution is to save money, eat better, or stress less, HelloFresh is here to help you do all three. Say hello to your most delicious year yet with fresh ingredients and chef-crafted recipes at a price you'll like, delivered right to your door. Make saving time your breeziest resolution with quick convenient recipes. Just choose your meals and select your delivery date. HelloFresh handles the meal planning and shopping, so all that you have to do is open your weekly box of pre-portioned ingredients and step-by-step recipes to get cooking. My favorite recipe recently has been the meatloaf with creamy thyme sauce. It's hearty and delicious, which is perfect for this time of year. To get started, go to HelloFresh.com slash MrCreepsFree. And use code Mr. Creeps Free for free breakfast for life. That's one breakfast item per box while your subscription is active. That's free breakfast for life at HelloFresh.com/MrCreepsFree with code MrCreepsFree. HelloFresh, America's number one meal kit. Our local power plant is burning something much worse than fossil fuels. Written by Box Goblin. Begin Transmission from Redacted. Quarantine Level 24. I'm not sure how much time I have before they track this, but there's a lot to go over and I want to make sure that every detail is recorded. If this is the only time that I'm able to contact the outside world, I want somebody to know what really happened on November 13th in Redacted. The newspapers said it was a minor power surge caused by a blown transformer at the Redacted power plant. They lied. Something was unleashed that night. Something that I still can't quite explain, but... I'll be damned if they keep the truth buried down here with me. And it. The whole thing started with the drains. November 13th. Midnight. Hey, last chance to chicken out, I said. I was with my two best friends from high school. We'll call them Colton and Abby. The three of us had dressed for the occasion, black long-sleeved shirts, black jeans, black shoes, black hats. We stood in a large, concrete basin, staring at the entrance to a massive storm drain. Somebody had graffitied the phrase, abandon all hope above its opening. I'm not chickening out, Abby said, adjusting her backpack, but I don't want to get COVID-23, Ebola, or whatever else is in there. She put on a mask. A trickle of brownish sludge flowed from the drain's entranceway, a mixture of rainwater, decaying plant matter, and God knows what else. It had a slightly musty smell. Probably nothing serious. Hopefully, still Abby had a point. I donned an N95 myself. Colton just grabbed a black bandana from his pack and wrapped it around his nose and mouth. All right, let's do this. He slung a heavy backpack over his shoulder. You pack your whole closet in there, Abby asked. It's just some extra flashlights and batteries, Colton said. Can't be too careful. "Ah, Fine by me, Abby said, so long as you're the one that's carrying it. Colton smirked. Neither he nor Abby had been urban exploring before, unlike me. I had already been on countless expeditions with my urbex group, the Night Riders, which was just me and two of my best friends since grade school. And we would drive around late at night on the weekends and explore abandoned locations around our hometown. Old paper mills, condemned mental hospitals, abandoned and allegedly haunted mansions. We would snap photos, record videos and tag walls with graffiti. While uploading the images and videos to our TikTok, night riders airbags it was dumb and dangerous but being 16 in a small town you tend to do dumb and dangerous things for fun the night riders was how i discovered the storm drains and learned that they led to our local power plant we'll call it the frog hollow power plant and we didn't explore the plant ourselves it wasn't an abandoned facility and we didn't want to risk getting arrested for trespassing but I made note of the plant and included its location when we mapped the drainage system. How far do we have to go? Abby asked. I checked my hand-drawn drains map. I had made it for the Night Riders. It was a large sheet of sketch paper filled with crisscrossing pathways, originally drawn in pencil and later traced over in ink. I had marked each drain with a corresponding color and approximate distance. Yellow tunnel, a 15 minute walk. Blue tunnel, a 30-minute walk. My finger ran across all the tunnels that we would have to to traverse to make it to Frog Hollow. It's about an hour's walk. An hour in there? Colton stared into the dark void beyond the drain's entrance. I met him through an after-school club that I had joined to boost my resume for college applications. It was called the Eagle Eco-Warriors, named after our school mascot, the Eagles. I say that I joined to boost my resume, but I also had a crush on Abby Williams, the club's historian, a state championship winning track star and consistently voted among the school's top babes. I had never had the courage to say more than a few words to Abby in the English class that we shared, but I figured joining the Eco Warriors would force us to interact more. And it did. Abby took a real interest in my outdoorsy hobbies. Hiking, fishing, biking. And I realized that we shared a lot of the same interests. Including a love of classic 80s and 90s horror flicks. But I also learned that she was dating the eco-warrior's president and co-founder, Colton. The night of November 13th was Colton's idea. He had conceived of the plan even before he had found out about my adventures with the Knight Riders and the secret entrance to Frog Hollow. Colton, like many residents of our town, was fed up with the power plant on its outskirts. There had been rumors of toxic leaks going back decades, but every official investigation into the plant's operations turned up nothing. It was as if the power company had paid off every politician and law enforcement official, forcing them to look the other way. While locals reported strange illnesses and weird, foul-smelling water flowing from their faucets, somebody needs to expose them, Colton said at our eco-warrior's meetings. Everybody knows that they're dumping waste into the river, we just can't get onto the property to prove it. And then Colton heard about my drains map. Thin root tendrils hung from the curved concrete ceiling like matted hair. We had to duck down to keep from hitting them as we walked through the drains. I led the group with my map, using a headlamp to light the way. The lamp's halogen bulb only illuminated a few feet into the darkness, but at least it was bright enough to reveal any obstacles in our way. We kept our legs far apart so as to not step in the thin stream of brownish-green sludge that was flowing along the drain's base. I captured some short clips of the journey on my iPhone, close-ups on a tiny spider dangling from a silvery web on the ceiling, footage of moss hovering near my headlamp like furry little helicopters. Our plan was to upload footage to our socials using hashtags like frog-hollow-corruption and frog-hollow-pollution after the trip. The holy grail would be video of toxic waste dumping on the plant grounds. It was something that many locals suspected. Until that time, I figured I would grab some nice moody shots to use for future Night Rider pose. We stopped for a water break at a concrete junction point halfway there. Abby and Colton both seemed less anxious than the larger space. I captured more footage of graffiti on the concrete walls left by previous urban explorers. One piece in particular stood out. Somebody had painted a detailed circuit board like something that you would see in an old electronics manual. It was painted in black save for one red image in its center. I moved closer to get a better look. All the circuits led to a grotesque humanoid stick figure in red at the center. The figure had an odd shape, obscenely long arms and an extra head growing from its back, and three red eyes. Staring at it, I felt a strange sensation like a static shock. It enveloped my skin for a few seconds and then quickly dissipated. I took a picture of the image. Perhaps the other night riders would know the artist. Whoever it was, they were insanely talented and insanely creepy. Now We're making good time, Colton said, checking a gold watch on his wrist. A nice bling, Abby said. It was a heavy-looking timepiece, one of those popular luxury brands like Rolex or Breitling. Thanks, Colton said, twisting the watch on his arm. It was my dad's. Oh, Abby fell silent. We all knew about Mr. Harrison. His death was perhaps the biggest factor driving Colton's mission to shut down Frog Hollow. Colton's dad grew up in Tall Pines, a neighborhood just across the river from the power plant back in those days the plant ran on coal and the pollution problem was much worse for years the residents of tall pines complained of brown water coming from their pipes and a general stench in the air like rotten eggs mixed with burnt copper but because the neighborhood was home to low-income families almost all of whom were black or brown the city government made virtually no effort to clean up the mess and this lasted for decades It took a class-action lawsuit in the publicity of an Emmy-nominated TV documentary, The Corrupted Heart of Frog Hollow, to finally bring about real change in the late 90s. The Frog Hollow Power Company updated their plant to make it more environmentally friendly. The plant was turned into a state-of-the-art natural gas facility, capable of providing ten times the power at a quarter of the cost. They never provided more concrete information than that. Most folks believe that they just plugged up all the toxic leaks. But at least the city had relocated all the residents of Tall Pines free of charge. They were placed in cheap townhomes on the other side of town, a full 20 miles away from the power plant. That's where Colton was born and grew up. Tall Pines was left abandoned, deemed too expensive to demolish. The neighborhood was condemned, becoming the source of many local urban legends. I had been there once with the Night Riders. It was eerie seeing all those suburban homes covered in coots, though. Their roofs collapsed and windows and doors boarded up. I refused to go back once I met Colton and heard his story. Even though the city had relocated Tall Pines residents, many of them were already carrying lifelong ailments. Residents like Mr. Harrison... Colton's father had suffered gastrointestinal issues since he was a child, but they didn't become serious until middle age. At 50, he was often vomiting blood and couldn't hold down any solid food. It turned out to be stomach cancer. Mr. Harrison spent five years battling the disease and fighting for a settlement from Frog Hollow. He ended up losing both battles. The way Colton explained it, There wasn't enough evidence to prove pollution had caused the disease. The whole affair had devastated the family. Colton was only 10 at the time. He became deeply depressed and antisocial in junior high, bullying other kids and picking fights on the playground after school. It wasn't until high school that he started seeing a therapist and getting his life back on track. Most of his current classmates didn't even know that he had suffered such a horrible tragedy. It's okay," Colton said, twisting the watch's dial. "I wanted him here with us tonight." Abby laid a comforting hand on Colton's shoulder. He is. A few quiet moments passed. We sat there, listening to the soft, steady trickle of water flowing through the drains. And then Colton got up, slinging his heavy backpack over his shoulder. Let's keep moving. do you hear that the drains were growing wider almost wide enough for us to walk side by side we were close to our destination i was still leading the way consulting my map there it is again abby cocked her head there what is i asked wait shh abby stopped walking colton and i did too listen all I could hear was our muffled breathing beneath the masks and the occasional dripping of water from the ceiling. But after a moment I heard this soft croaking noise. It was very faint. So faint that I almost thought it was in my head at first. What is that? I hear it too, Colton said. It's coming from ahead of us, Abby said and she looked pale. I took on my trusty mag light, a heavy-duty flashlight in case of emergencies. But I don't see anything. I said aiming it ahead. My mag light only illuminated more of the concrete tunnel before terminating into darkness. Guys, it's just some stupid frog. Colton brushed past us and kept moving. Abby and I quickly followed. I kept the mag light pointed ahead. As we walked further, it lit up a square junction point. I nearly dropped my flashlight when Abby gasped. She was the first to see them. Stop! We came to a halt just before the junction's entrance. There were hundreds of them sitting motionless in the darkness. Bullfrogs. Their fat green bodies shined like slimy rocks in the light. I pulled up my cell to record the odd tableau. There were bullfrogs squatting everywhere. The floors, the walls, even a few hanging from the ceiling. But that wasn't the strangest thing. They're all facing the same direction. Abby whispered. She was right. All the frogs stared at a small blue-green fungus growing in the middle of the junction. It was shaped like a flower. Okay, this is really weird, I said. Have you ever seen anything like this? Abby asked. The frogs remained motionless. I shook my head. The strangest thing that I had ever seen urban exploring was a group of rats with their tails stuck together. It was freaky but apparently not unknown to science. I googled it later and found out it was a phenomenon called a rat king. But this... I had seen plenty of bullfrogs exploring at night, but never so many and in such an odd formation. And with the fungus. I don't think frogs are supposed to do this, I said. I would look it up, but my signal shot down here. Yeah, same here. Abby had her phone out too. They're probably just resting, Colton said. He seemed antsy. Jason, which way do we go next? Jason, Jason! I looked up suddenly realizing that I'd been staring at the fungus just like the frogs. The plant's pale flesh-like body glowed faintly in the dark. Uh, Sorry, what? Your map, which way next? There's two different tunnels ahead. Hold on, we're still going ahead? Abby asked. Yeah, Colton said. He started to enter the junction. Uh, Babe, wait... But nothing crazy happened. Colton just brushed some of the frogs aside with his boot. They all hopped out of the way. But they always repositioned themselves to face the fungus again. You see, there's nothing to be scared of. Jason, which tunnel? I checked the map. Uh, to the left. Come on. I don't like this, Colton, Abby said. Babe, we're not turning back. But the fungus. It's just more evidence that Frog Hollow is messing up nature with its pollution, Colton said. And more reason for us to get them back. Right, Jason? He pulled down his bandana, staring at me. I sighed. I was usually the one to settle disputes between the couple. Colton was the risk taker. Abby was the cautious one. While I landed somewhere in the middle... I hated being the one to make the decision, much preferring to go with the flow. But there were three of us so it made sense that I would be the tiebreaker. My gut leaned towards going back. I didn't want to make Abby any more upset than already was. But then I saw the look on Colton's face. The quiet, simmering anger. The longing for revenge. I recalled Colton telling us about the last time that he saw his father. Just a skeleton covered in bed sores. But then my mag light hit on something further down the left tunnel, where we were supposed to go next. It was a rusty ladder and I knew right where it would take us. We're almost there, I said pointing at the ladder. Abby shot me a look that I'll never forget, a look of utter bewilderment, but then she said, Well, let's get this done then. We quickly stepped through the sea of bullfrogs. Abby and I made sure to follow Colton's footsteps exactly, since he had cleared the animals out with his boots. It wasn't nearly as terrifying as I had expected. We were through the junction before I knew it, and then to the rusted ladder, and back up to the surface. It took all of our strength, but Colton and I managed to lift the manhole cover so that we could climb out we arrived on the outskirts of the power plant, next to a series of nondescript warehouses. Security lights dotted the featureless buildings, bathing the area in a soft yellow gloom. The night air was chilly. A deep, rhythmic hum surrounded us. It was the sound of the plant's many generators and substations. The main power plant structure loomed in the distance, A series of giant windowless buildings covered in miles of complex metal tubing and topped with thin chimneys that spewed smoke and flame into the cloudy night. It looked like an alien city. The three of us stayed low behind some bushes. Our eyes peeled for any security cameras or guards nearby. But the place appeared abandoned. See, there's no one around, Colton whispered. He knew someone who had worked security at the plant some years back. The informant had mentioned that the Halein area was barely patrolled between midnight and 2am. I checked my watch. It was 1.03. We had almost an hour left. Well okay, the retention pond is just over there. I pointed to a dark patch of water nearby. Let's go grab some shots and get out of here. Wait. Colton held up his hand what what is it colton pulled down his bandana he had a strange look on his face like he was nauseous there's something that i need to do real quick it'll only take a few minutes just stay here and before either of us could ask him more he scurried off into the dark keeping to the shadows colton abby gave the loudest whisper that she could get back here right now but her boyfriend didn't turn back. He had already disappeared behind a nearby warehouse. What the heck is going on? I asked. I don't know. He didn't tell you anything. No, Abby pulled off her mask. She was clearly flustered, a breathing heavily. He always does stuff like this. Like what? Oh, changing plans midstream. Abby sighed. I had never suspected her and Colton to be having a hard time. They were touted as relationship goals by everybody at school. Abby started to follow Colton. "Uh, Come on. Wait a minute, I said. He told us to stay here. Yeah, I'm not going to let him get arrested for doing something stupid, Abby said. Or worse. She didn't have to say the rest. We both knew that a six-foot black kid trespassing at a power plant could have dire consequences. Abby and I stayed low to the ground using any nearby foliage to recover. Crickets chirped nearby. We put our masks back on. If any security cameras caught us, at least they wouldn't see our faces. I'm gonna kill him, Abby said under her breath. And that's when a flash of movement caught my eye. Abby, there. I pointed to an area roughly 100 yards away. It was Colton, Colton, he was headed for an electrical substation a field of giant metal transformers and circuit breakers connected by crisscrossing wires this area was the source of the deep rhythmic hum that had permeated the air ever since we had arrived on the power plant property what the heck is he doing abby asked colton took off his heavy backpack setting it next to the largest transformer and then he removed a metal box covered in colorful wires It had an old flip phone attached to it. Oh god, Abby covered her mouth. Is that? Colton left the object by the transformer and ran towards our position. He didn't notice us hiding in the shadows until we got really close. And that's when his expression turned to anger. What are you doing here? What, what the heck are you? Abby was nearly hyperventilating. Colton, please tell me that's not a bomb, I said. I told you both to stay by the manhole. Colton, is it? He smirked. You really think some dumb video is going to stop this company? They'll say that it's fabricated. And if not, they'll bring in another inspection. And the company will pay them off like they always do. He was so heated, he was almost speaking in a normal voice. Babe, this is serious, Abby said. We're talking terrorism charges you do not want. I know exactly what I want. Colton said almost shouting. And at that moment I saw it. The burner phone in Colton's vest pocket. The trigger only inches away. I could easily grab it. This may be my only shot. No time to think. I grabbed the phone. My fingers grasped the plastic. But Colton grabbed my hand. What are you? It all happened so fast. A matter of seconds. We wrestled for the flip phone, but Colton was much stronger. He wrenched it from my hands, causing the phone to open and then his thumb accidentally pressed the call button. A static shock burned his finger. Ow! The bomb was small, but powerful and so loud. It blew apart the transformer instantly, sending sparks and shrapnel everywhere. A small piece lodged itself into Abby's thigh. The lights went out. It was so dark that I couldn't even see my hands in front of my face. The humming stopped, the cricket stopped, all the noise stopped. It was a deathly silent for a few seconds. And then I heard something that will haunt me for the rest of my life. A distant chorus of screams. It was as if hundreds or thousands of people were crying out in agony. Some of the voices sounded old and frail, some like children, and some didn't sound human at all. They cried in unison like they were all a part of one whole. A series of mouths attached to a giant beast. I had no idea what the screams were, but I was certain of one thing. They were all coming from inside the power plant. The ground shook like a series of undulating waves. The three of us fell to the ground. I heard concrete cracking in the buildings nearby. The ground was breaking apart. I thought the whole world was about to end. But then the power returned and the screaming chorus stopped mid-shriek. Some backup generator had apparently kicked on and humming filled the air. Crickets were chirping again and all seemed normal. I sat up, noticing the bloody gash on Abby's leg. abby you're. But she wasn't paying attention to her wound. Abby was crouched over Colton looking despondent. He's not breathing. Colton lay motionless on the ground, his right hand still gripping the flip phone. It was charred to a crisp. His hand was singed. Abby started to perform CPR when Colton suddenly woke up. His eyes bulged like they were going to pop out of his head. Colton? He glared at us like we were strangers. We need to get. Colton screamed. It was a loud and ear-splitting scream. So loud that I had to cover my ears. Abby started to cry and we knew that it was over. Seconds later, a dozen flashlights fell upon us. Flashlights that were connected to rifles. Face down on the ground. Now. Hands behind your back. We were surrounded by security personnel. Abby and I did as instructed. But Colton just lay there staring up in the night sky. His eyes and mouth wide. Crap, that's the alarm for lights out. I gotta log off, but check back here soon. I'll finish this report. I must. Okay, I'm back. For those of you who are new, please check my first transmission above. I'm going to try and write as much as I can, but I can't guarantee that I'll get through it all. The guards are doing random cell checks now. I have to be extra cautious. Face down on the ground, now, hands behind your back. I felt a pair of cold metal cuffs clamp down on my wrists. Am I under arrest? Ah, quiet. The power plant's security guards dragged Abby and I to our feet, our hands cuffed behind our backs. The guards wore tactical body armor, the kind of stuff you would see the special forces wearing. Definitely not what you would expect for a power company. And Gas masks covered their heads. Don't say another word. Their voices were filtered through small speakers attached to the masks. The other guards grabbed Colton. He was still lying on the ground in a catatonic state. I didn't see what happened next because somebody covered my head in a thick black cloth bag. It was pitch black inside. Even the sound was muffled. God, my parents are going to kill me, I thought. I was their oldest son, the responsible one, never getting in trouble, always making straight A's. They didn't even know that I was a part of the Knight Riders. All our urban exploration missions were nights that I supposedly slept over at my friend's house, a fellow Night Rider. I had never even been grounded, for Christ's sakes. For them to learn that I had trespassed on a power plant. No, that I was a part of a bombing. Are we terrorists now? The guards let us down a dozen yards away. We were placed into the back of an SUV or a van, some sort of big vehicle. It didn't drive very far. When we got out, the air felt still, like we were inside a vacuum-sealed room. The footsteps echoed off of distant walls. The soles of my shoes squeaked on the floor, probably tile. What is this place, I wondered. Some kind of CIA black site. Were we being led to a prison cell or something worse? You're not under arrest," a woman's voice said nearby. I think she was escorting us. She sounded concerned, yet kind and gentle. Then why am I in cuffs? For your own safety," the woman said. Her voice sounded filtered too, probably speaking through a gas mask or a hazmat suit. Safety? How would we be a danger to ourselves? My footsteps went from squeaks to metal clangs. The sounds were closer now, louder. We had entered a small room. Somebody led me to a chair, forcing me to sit down. They strapped my hands and legs to the metal furniture, and then they removed the cloth bag from my head. What? I was sitting inside a large, windowless box with metal tubing covering the walls and ceiling. The guards who led me there quickly left the room, closing a steel door behind them, the only exit. Jason, where are we? I craned my neck. Abby was in a chair facing the opposite direction, also tied down. I don't know. Did you see what happened to Cole? A loud squeaking interrupted us, microphone feedback, and then I heard the kind woman's voice again filtered through a speaker somewhere inside the room. Just relax, and the decontamination process will only take a few seconds. It may look scary, but we promise that it's painless. Painless. There was a loud mechanical whine. The tubes covering every inch of the room began to glow deep orange. A horrible thought crossed my mind at that moment. It felt like Abby and I were inside a giant oven and they had just set it to its maximum temperature. The glow became brighter and the whining grew louder, but there was no heat. If anything, the air inside the room was cooler than before. Cold, icy cold. I tried to open my mouth to speak, but I was suddenly overcome with exhaustion. My eyelids grew leaden, and before I knew anything else, darkness, I woke with a gasp, lying in a hospital. My clothes were gone and I was naked beneath a gown. Various medical devices beeped and whirled around me. There were electrodes attached to my head, neck and chest. An oxygen mask covered my face and an IV was hooked into my right arm. Hello? I tried moving my arms but they were restrained. I was strapped to the bed. I'm sure they would say that it was for my own safety, but it certainly felt like I was a prisoner. I checked my surroundings. The room didn't have any windows, at least not to the outside. There was one window, but it only revealed an adjacent room, similarly decked out with medical equipment. Am I in an ICU? I couldn't tell if it was still night or the following day, or even days later. Abby and Colton were nowhere to be seen. A man entered the room. He was tall and wearing a full-body hazmat suit. Hey, where am I? I was worried my voice was muffled because of the oxygen mask. The man glanced at me. He looked like some old college professor. Hey, It's okay, we're just running a few more tests. Tests? Tests for what? Where are my friends? The man didn't answer. He turned around, checking the machines while writing notes on an iPad. That's when I saw a symbol emblazoned on the back of his hazmat. I nearly gasped. It was the same circuit board that I saw on the drains, the one with all the wires that led to a grotesque humanoid shape. There was no writing accompanying the symbol. Where am I? Still no answer. A light turned on in the adjacent hospital room. I watched through the window as a group of hazmats wheeled in someone on a stretcher. I could barely see the patient, just glimpses through the crowd. It was a woman, and she wore a uniform for the Frog Hollow power plant. Her skin was pale, almost translucent, but that's not what made me scream. What made me scream were the fungal growths that were sprouting from her eyelids and mouth. They were blue green and shaped like flowers, glowing faintly beneath the fluorescence above. The fungi bloomed, revealing tiny mouths within. Tiny screaming mouths. The screams were shrill like steam issuing from a boiling tea kettle. And as soon as I had heard them, I screamed too. Like an involuntary reaction. Like the screaming was contagious. The hazmat monitoring me grabbed a syringe and hooked it into my IV. As soon as he depressed the plunger, I was overcome. Darkness. Darkness i woke up on a thin cot immediately sitting up was it a nightmare i was wearing a plain blue jumpsuit no longer restrained that's when i took in my surroundings screw me i was inside a tiny windowless prison cell just a bed a sink and a toilet thick metal bars covered the entrance i'm not under arrest huh Beyond the bars lay a blank hallway, no signage and no windows, no evidence of where I was. And then I heard something that gave me hope. Jason, are you awake? It was Abby and she sounded close. Where are you? In the cell next to yours, they brought us here after the hospital. Who's they? The power plant people, Abby said. I think we're still here. I think we're somehow under the main facility. A million questions ran through my head. How much did Abby know? How much had she seen? Did she see the fungus? Was that even real or just some drug-induced hallucination? Abby, I finally said. What's happened to us? Where's Colton? I don't know. Her voice was hoarse like she had been crying. Are we contaminated by something? "'No!' I nearly jumped. "'Somebody was standing right outside of my cell, "'an Asian woman mid-forties wearing a fancy tailored suit, "'short haircut and a serious expression. "'She was flanked by two muscular guards holding rifles. "'Before I could speak, "'what were you three doing here?' "'We're not saying anything unless you tell us what happened to our friend,' Abby said. "'She sounded defiant.' but there was a strong undercurrent of fear in her voice. The woman pursed her lips. Oh, I'm sorry, let's start from the beginning. My name is Yumiko. I'm the new owner of Frog Hollow, the facility that the three of you just tried to blow up. We didn't mean to. The words just spilled out of my mouth, but as soon as I had said them, I knew how ridiculous they sounded. They had obviously seen the explosion and its aftermath, i mean we never planned i stopped short i didn't want to place the blame on colton they wouldn't believe me even if i tried how about you tell me your names first no abby said you have no right to detain us like this you're not police this is what kidnapping yumiko laughed you have no idea how much trouble you've caused She paced back and forth between our adjacent cells as she continued. You've done immense damage to this facility. We still don't know the full extent, but it will take a long time to get everything back to normal. And as for your friend, he's currently in our intensive care ward suffering from toxic shock. Toxic shock? How much do you know about this place? Yumiko stared into my eyes. Nothing, I almost said. Colton was the one who had handled all the power plant research, though that was relatively scant according to him. There was very little public information about the plant's state-of-the-art natural gas facility. According to Colton, who spent hours scouring the internet, the details were annoyingly vague. But Abby remained silent next door, and I wasn't going to give up anything if she wasn't. Look, the police are on their way now, Yumiko said but i can help your case if you give me something to work with she kept pacing are there any others involved with this bombing no answer how long have you been planning this operation no answer and did you see anything tonight that you couldn't explain anything unusual still nothing abby continued her silence next door but I was getting antsy, pulling my hair, rubbing my sweaty palms against the pants of my jumpsuit. Yumiko keyed in on this. She stopped pacing between the cells, focusing only on me instead of the both of us. You don't have to tell them about the bombing, you know. I could simply say that you were trespassing on the property, and you accidentally triggered a power surge. Her iridescent green eyes locked onto mine. It's just us, I said. Just the three of us. Jason, Abby blurted angrily from next door, but she stopped short, recognizing her faux pas. Oh, Jason, is it? Yumiko smiled. Well, Jason, do you mind telling me more about this plan the three of you had concocted? Is our friend going to be okay? I asked. His condition's stable, but it will take time for him to fully heal. We heard screaming when the bomb went off. Well, those were the screams of our employees. They were scared for their lives. It didn't sound like human screaming, I said. I'm sorry, are you the one running this interrogation? Yumiko asked. You answer my questions or you'll receive no help when the authorities arrive. Don't say anything else. Abby blurted from next door. I had to force my mouth shut. My mind was brimming with so many unanswered questions, so many burning mysteries. But Abby was right. There was no use saying more. We couldn't trust anything that the power plant workers said. What reason would they have to help us after we had allegedly tried to blow up their plant? We'll wait for the police to arrive. Abby said with some finality Thank you. Yumiko issued a long sigh staring at the floor. Fine, she said, and then she looked back up to me. She was about to say something more when her phone had vibrated in her pocket. Yumiko pulled out the cell answering. Yes? A muffled voice answered. I couldn't hear what the person on the other end was saying, but they sounded frantic, downright terrified. Yumiko didn't speak the whole time. She only held the phone to her ear listening and her face grew more and more concerned by the second. Finally, she hung up. What was that? I asked, referring to the call. Yumiko just looked at me with this strange expression like a deer in the headlights and then she motioned to her armed guards and the three of them left on the hall shutting a door behind them. Hey, I shouted. Wait, what's going on? Forget it, Abby said. They're not going to tell us anything. I went up to the bars near where our two cells met. How's the leg? Fine, they patched it up in the hospital ward. You were there too. I thought about the fungal victim in the ICU. Did she see that woman too? Abby, what the heck is really going on here? You heard that screaming right when the bomb went off. I don't know what I heard, Abby said. But I don't think this place is running on natural gas or coal or whatever the heck they tell the public. It might not even be a power plant. What do you mean? You saw those armed guards. Well, yeah. This feels like something military, Abby said. Like a top secret project. The power plant is just a cover for it. Military? Yeah, like they're building weapons here or something. You're right, maybe chemical weapons. I saw somebody in the hospital. She, she looked like she had some kind of disease. I sighed. The immensity of the stuff that we were in was still catching up with me. We're going to prison for this, aren't we? Abby started to respond, but she cut herself off as... All the lights went off in the building, plunging us into pitch darkness. Crap. Another power surge. We heard muffled shouting coming from somewhere deeper in the building. Too far to discern what they were saying. But there were a lot of voices and they all sounded frantic. Almost as soon as they had started the voices stopped. Replaced with gunshots. Machine gun fire echoed through the distant hallways. I ran to the back of my cell covering behind the cot. Jesus it sounded like a war was raging. Abby must be right, this was some kind of military base. I curled into a ball and shut my eyes, hoping that it would all be over soon. The gunshots died down, but they were replaced with something worse. heavy thuds, one after another, after another. The noises brought a sickening image to mind. Bodies hitting the floor, blood splattering the walls. Finally, the thudding stopped and all was quiet i kept my eyes shut after a few seconds a series of soft yellow emergency lights flickered to life and then i heard the creaking of metal doors i opened my eyes the door to my cell was ajar huh i was still hunched in the back corner of the room terrified of what lay in the gloom beyond until i heard a familiar voice jason colton stood outside my cell He wore a jumpsuit just like mine his right hand was bandaged the hand that he had held the flip phone with but otherwise he appeared unharmed i'm back again sorry for the delay internet access has been spotty down here lately for those of you who are new please check my first two transmissions above colton was outside the cell he wore a jumpsuit just like mine his right hand was bandaged—the hand that held the flip phone—but otherwise he appeared unharmed. That's okay. You guys can come out. Abby emerged from herself first. She stared at her boyfriend in astonishment, mouth agape. "You're," Colton nodded. Abby rushed to hug him. "I thought you were dead." And Colton kissed her on the forehead. "That's all right, babe. It was just a bad shock." He held up his bandaged hand. I'm fine now. I got to my feet. We heard gunshots. I know. Colton ushered me forward. "Ah, Come on, I'll explain it on the way. I walked out of my cell. The hallway beyond was empty, nondescript, and windowless, like so much else in the facility. Emergency lights illuminated the cramped space. There were a handful of other prison cells in the corridor, all of them empty. This way, Colton led us in the opposite direction that Yumiko and her armed guards went earlier. ''Where are we going?'' Abby asked. ''We're getting the heck out of here.'' Abby and I followed close behind, our eyes whipping in all directions, searching for other guards or prisoners. ''Were you locked up in here with us?'' I asked. Not in this ward, Colton said. I was in another section, but somebody helped me break out, another prisoner. Who? Abby asked. Ash, Colton said. He worked here until he turned a whistleblower and they locked him up. Seems even the employees were getting fed up with how this place is run. A thin sheen of sweat covered Colton's forehead. His eyes were wide. He looked amped, as if high on adrenaline. Ash figured out a way to hack the locks in our ward. Where is Ash now? Abby asked, a tad suspicious. Colton's face fell. I knew before he even said it. He didn't make it. So they were shooting at you. I thought of the gunshots that we had heard earlier. It had sounded like a war was raging in the next room over. A bunch of us got out at the same time, Colton said. Some fought back, others ran, like myself. We had reached the end of the hallway. Colton bent down and removed a metal panel near the floor. I was lucky to make it. He wiped the sweat from his forehead. But Ash told me about a way that we could sneak out. He finished removing the panel, revealing a small dark tunnel beyond. It appeared to be some kind of access way full of tangled wiring. Barely big enough for any of us to squeeze through, least of all Colton. Through there, Abby asked, her suspicion rising. I crouched down. The access way was too dark to see where it led. The tunnel appeared to turn sharply to the right about a dozen feet inside. But what other choice did we have? We were criminals now and they were likely armed guards at every exit well it's not like we can just walk out the front door i said abby smirked. she stared into the passage you sure this was the right creepy tunnel that ash had mentioned yeah he was real specific colton said i know it looks tight but colton took a deep breath and squeezed his big shoulders through the entrance only his butt and feet were sticking out now if i can fit then the rest of him disappeared into the tunnel. I turned to Abby. You go next. I'll take up the rear, just in case. Abby sighed. We crawled on all fours through the cramped passage, single file. Colton first, then Abby and then myself. I thought the drains could be claustrophobic, but this was much, much worse. The loose wiring felt like tiny snakes brushing up against my backside, I never wanted to bolt out of a place faster in my life. I kept fearing that I would get electrocuted, but it seemed that none of the wires were live. Most of the building's power was still out. Fortunately, the tunnel didn't last long. We rounded a few tight corners and then saw a light up ahead. Is that daylight? I asked. I couldn't see past Colton's big frame. I know, but we're getting close. Colton and Abby crawled out, giving me my first look at our destination. It appeared to be a vast space. There was a loud, periodic, hissing noise. I couldn't quite place it. Not until I crawled out of the tunnel. What the? We were in a massive chamber full of giant metal tubing. The room must have been hundreds of feet tall and God knows how wide. The endless tubing reminded me of those fun tunnel mazes that you would see in an indoor playground. Only these tunnels were made of gray featureless metal, and many of them vented steam on a regular basis. The source of the hissing noise that I'd heard in the access tunnel. Where are we? Abby asked. Ash had mentioned this place, Colton said. It's the ventilation center. These tubes then steam, wastewater, and various gases from the core. Where's the way out? I searched the area for an exit sign, but I found none. There were no windows either. All the light came from yellow emergency panels placed at various locations near the floor, leaving most of the room cloaked in shadow. Hmm, it's. Colton scanned our vicinity. It's through here. He walked deeper into the room, his body disappearing behind some low-hanging pipes. They lead to condensation onto the concrete floor. Colton, wait! Abby ran after him and I followed after. What? Colton said stopping. This doesn't feel right, Abby said. It seems like we're heading deeper into the power plant, not out of it. Well, this is the way that Ash said... Are you sure how long were you even speaking to this man? I mean, ourselves, were right next to each other. He knows every inch of this place. Jason? Abby turned to me. What do you think? Now there it is again, just like with the frogs and the drains earlier. I was the tiebreaker. Abby, what other way would we take? I don't know, but this... Her voice trailed off. She appeared deep in thought. Look, Ash knows this place inside and out, Colton said. Trust me, we're going the right way. I looked at Abby. She seemed worried, and her intuition was almost never wrong. Jason, come on, man, Colton said. We'd be out of here by now if we didn't stop to have this chat. I was still uncertain. We all stood there in silence for a beat. Colton started walking further into the room. You can follow if you want, but you better do it now. The guards will be searching here soon. As soon as Colton left, Abby pointed to a heavy-duty monkey wrench lying on the ground nearby. Take that. What? Just in case. I found it odd that she didn't ask her boyfriend to grab the weapon instead. Colton was obviously much stronger than myself. Perhaps her distrust wasn't with Ash, but with him. Stay close, Abby told me as we started to follow Colton. I grabbed the wrench. The metal rod felt heavy and cold in my sweaty hands. Abby, Jason. We're coming, Abby said. I gripped the wrench, scared by the thought of using it. I had never even been in a fight before, and now here I was holding a weapon capable of breaking bones. I won't have to use it, I told myself. I kept repeating that over and over, like a mantra. Abby and I had been through a lot tonight. We're just overly anxious. Colton is leading us out of here. We're going home. My parents are going to kill me and the cops will likely be waiting to arrest me. But I'll deal with all of those things later. Let's just get out of this creepy place first. Come on, Colton sounded close hidden behind a thick batch of tubing. His voice was slightly muffled by all the steam. Abby was the first to pass through. I heard her gasp as soon as she had arrived on the other side. Oh my God, I ran ahead. Abby grabbed my arm as soon as I had passed through, stopping me from going forward. (laughs) What the? We were standing in a charred section of the room. It was as if a massive fire had flowed through the space. Most of the tubing was melted. Liquefied metal dripped on the floor. Colton, Abby called out. But he was nowhere to be seen. It was so quiet, too quiet, and then... A sudden hacking cough drew our attention. It was coming from behind a nearby bulkhead. Colton? We headed towards the noise. The voice sounded raspy like somebody struggling to breathe. Did Colton accidentally breathe in the toxic fumes? I suddenly wished that we had our masks again. Colton, where are you? Abby and I crept toward the bulkhead. It was charred completely black, its melted surface lumpy and bulbous. As we drew closer, I saw the surface had a distinctive shape. It looked oddly familiar. Oh crap, Abby jumped back. She was the first to notice. I stepped closer and the coughing quickly turned into a pained groan, a groan of utter agony. Only then did I see a section of the bulkhead open up, a hole had formed in its charred surface. No, not a hole. It was a mouth. The bulkhead had a mouth and it was groaning. Up close, I could see the wall's lumpy surface was in the shape of a human body. I could just make out the charred uniform with its circuit board symbol. The same symbol I saw on the drains and later in the ICU. We were right next to a power plant employee who had melted into the bulkhead. He was fused to the structure but somehow still alive. A pair of bloodshot eyes opened staring at Abby and I, pleading for death. The screaming reached a fever pitch. Oh, forget this, Abby said. We ran in the opposite direction, trying to get as far away from that monstrosity as we could. But the screams followed us. There were dozens more people, all fused to the charred remains of walls and tubing. Abby and I kept turning in different directions, but we couldn't find our way back. We were lost. Oh God, Colton, Abby cried. Where are you? I stared at the half-melted bodies surrounding us. Was Colton one of them? Had we entered some kind of chemical weapons testing area? I'm sorry you had to see this. Ash, I didn't mention this on the shortcut. Abby and I turned. Colton was right behind us and he looked calm, peaceful even. But he was now holding a handgun. Colton held it in his right hand. The hand that he had pressed, the bomb trigger. He had removed the bandages on that hand, revealing charred flesh underneath. Colton's burn had grown larger, creeping up his right arm. "'Oh, Jesus, Colton,' Abby said, moving closer to my side. "'He didn't mean to harm them,' Colton said. The fused people screamed louder now, as if Colton's presence brought them more pain. "'But they locked him up, torturing him day and night.' Ash, he just wants to be free. Then all of this will be over. My fingers gripped the wrench tighter, trying to keep my voice calm. Colton, buddy, you're, you're unwell. We need to get you out of here, Abby said. Get you to a hospital. I'm unwell, Colton grinned. His eyes glowed blue like the fungus we had seen earlier. Had something gotten into him, infecting him, Was it going to infect us next? This world is unwell, Colton said. It's been poisoned beyond all recognition. I mean, look around you. He gestured to the charred bodies crying out in the dark. They are the sickness poisoning everything. But we can stop it. We just have to free him. Free who? Ash, Colton bellowed he showed me a way to end all of this to bring the earth back to how it was before we started destroying it baby please drop the gun abby said let's just get out of here drop the gun colton i added colton let out a heavy sigh fine he said squeezing the weapon in his charred hand In seconds, the gunmetal turned into molten liquid dripping onto the concrete floor. It was completely destroyed. (laughs) You can melt with the rest of them. Colton lunged at us. I swung the monkey wrench as hard as I could, but Colton caught it in his burnt hand. I felt intense heat, like I had just touched boiling water. I immediately let go of the wrench moments before it turned to molten lead. Run! Run! Abby and I sprinted away, ducking under nearby tubing. We ran deeper into the maze past burned out sections of piping, charred computer stations melted walls. All the while, sounds of crashing metal followed us. Colton, he was gaining on us. The ground rumbled like an earthquake. Where are we going? I don't know, I said, and I didn't care so long as we remained alive and weren't melted into the walls like the other poor souls around us. Jason. Abby pointed towards the door in the far corner. It had a bright red sign over it marked exit. Finally. We beelined it for the door but we didn't get far. Colton's path of destruction behind us had caused a series of pipes to burst overhead, spilling hot wastewater everywhere. Abby and I tried outrunning the torrent but it quickly overtook us, causing us to slip and fall into the sloshing mass. The water was warm, dirty, and bitter. Some of it got in my mouth as I struggled to catch my breath. Abby, I cried out, but she was lost in the deluge. The water kept carrying me all the way to the opposite end of the room, where a group of hulking figures stood. A gloved hand grabbed me, pulling me out of the torrent. I briefly saw Colton charging through the flooded building, headed right for me when... A huge cloud of icy smoke overtook him. Colton staggered. Ice crystals formed on his face and hands. I looked to my side. One of the plant's security guards had grabbed me, her face obscured by a gas mask, and her body covered in tactical armor. Another guard stood beside her holding what appeared to be some kind of massive flamethrower. Only instead of flame, this weapon spewed billowing clouds of icy smoke that enveloped Colton. He had stopped moving. "'I'm sorry that you had to see this,' a filtered voice said. It was the person who had pulled me up. Her voice, it sounded familiar. "'Yumiko?' the woman nodded. She was the power plant's owner. You can stop now, Yumiko told her partner. The guard turned off his ice thrower and the white cloud surrounding Colton had dissipated. He had turned into a giant icicle. Everything went quiet again. The rushing torrent had finally calmed, leaving the whole room flooded under three feet of smelly wastewater. Is he dead? I asked, staring at Colton's frozen face. No, Yumiko said. The entity is merely dormant for now. The entity that's our friend, Abby and I, oh god. I looked around the flooded room suddenly realizing that Abby was nowhere in sight. Did she drown? Abby, Abby. We'll find her, the other guard said. His voice also filtered through a gas mask. The wastewater drains into a series of sluice gates at the edges. She probably fell into one of them. We need to find her and get the heck out of. What we need to do now is secure the plant's core, Yumiko said. It's become unstable. She turned to me. And you're coming with us. What? This isn't a power plant, I said, anger bubbling. This is, this is, it's messed up. You've got people locked up in here torturing them. Somebody named Ash. Yumiko grabbed my arm, her voice worried. He told you about Ash. Yeah, Colton said you locked up one of your employees and were torturing him, I said. He wanted to free Ash. Ash isn't a person, Yumiko said. Ash is the power plant's core, our fuel source. Ash is some kind of fuel? Yumiko let out a long, pained sigh and then she said, Ash is a demon. Okay, I'm finally ready to talk about what led to me being locked up here. Hopefully this last message will serve as a warning. If you haven't already, please check out the first three transmissions above before reading further. So the core is a demon. I would have laughed were it not for what I had just witnessed in the ventilation room. That's our best guess given the entity's nature, Yumiko said. She stared at a tablet computer reading damage reports as she led us deeper into the power plant. We passed through rooms full of arcane equipment giant metal vats bubbling over with blue liquid, jet black turbines, walls of glowing occult symbology. The further that we went, the less everything looked like a power plant and more it started to resemble a futuristic temple. Yumiko radioed a bunch of people as we walked. She directed a team to go and fetch Colton. He was still an icicle sitting in the ventilation room. Yumiko claimed they were going to take him to the ICU to thaw out. She didn't sound hopeful when she said this, however. Another team was sent to search for Abby. How likely is it that they'll find her alive? I asked. They'll do everything they can, Yumiko said. That sounds unlikely. Why am I here? "'Somebody will explain it to you when we reach the core.'" That was all that Yumiko said on the matter before radioing more employees. I thought of asking more questions, but she was clearly too busy. Yumiko had given me a hazmat suit to wear, complete with the Frog Hollow logo. It was that strange circuit board symbol with a grotesque human stick figure in the center that, I now assumed, was the demon, Ash. Ash. The suit was bulky, clearly meant for someone a foot taller and a hundred pounds heavier than myself, but it was high quality material and perfectly sealed. We saw dozens more workers as we continued onward. All of them wore hazmats, and all of them carried weapons, mostly rifles and handguns, but a few carried those strange ice-thrower weapons that had frozen Colton. I overheard Yumiko refer to these specialized guns as Cryolances. She directed some of the Cryolancers to secure the station's perimeter, while others came with us, serving as our guards. And this is it, Yumiko said. We had reached a large stairwell with only one way to go down. Stay behind the Cryolancers, they need to check the area first. Check for what? Yumiko didn't answer. We descended six flights until we reached the bottom of the stairwell. It led to a deep tunnel underground. The sector was hewn out of limestone like the interior of an old mine. There were occult symbols everywhere carved into the ceiling, the walls, and even the rocky floor. It was like somebody had written a massive protection spell. At the end of the tunnel was a cavern containing a giant metal box. Various wires and tubes sprouted from its sides, leading up to the ceiling and presumably the rest of the power station. Is that the core? Yes. There were numerous burn marks along the core's metal edges, as if a raging inferno had threatened to burst out of it. Long strings of glowing fungus grew across its polished steel surface. The same kind of fungus that I had seen in the drains earlier and on the worker in the ICU. Clearly, the gross were a sign of the demon's presence. Ice those tendrils, Yumiko told the cryolancers. They lifted their bulky weapons, spraying icy smoke on the core. The fungus strings quickly froze and flaked off of its metal exterior. I was told to stay back near the cavern entrance while the hazmats had finished their cleaning. Seeing the fungus tendrils freeze into icy dust made me wonder if the same thing would happen to Colton when they finally thought him out. My hope for his survival was dropping by the second though. Yumiko glanced back. What are you doing? She yelled at the guards by my side. and Get him prepped for the transmission. We're almost done here. Yes, ma'am. The guards ushered me over to a computer station in the back corner of the cavern. The area was connected to the plant's core via a series of wires taped to the floor. Scientists worked feverishly at a giant computer terminal with dozens of computer screens. Most of them flashed warnings in red letters. Containment breach. Meltdown imminent. Everybody was laser focused on their work. The lead scientist scoffed when she saw me. Why is he here? He's our best chance at communication, Yumiko said coming over. This boy survived close proximity with one of the Thralls. His mind is still intact. Thrall, what was that? Were they talking about Colton? What's going on? I asked. Nobody answered. One of the guards held my shoulder as if making sure that I wouldn't bolt out of the cavern. What about the other techno priests? The lead scientist had asked. She kept working at her computer as she talked, feverishly typing out code. Out of commission, Yumiko said. All of them? There are others on the way, but they won't be here for another four hours, minimum. We need to patch in now. The lead scientist stopped for a moment, glancing at me. He's not even trained. Then we'll be quick, far below the limit, Yumiko said. Set a timer for 90 seconds. We just need to calm it down. Will somebody please tell me what the heck is going on? I was shocked by the tone of my voice. Everyone fell silent, staring at me. There was an awkward beat, and then... I'll just prep him, Yumiko told the lead scientist and before we have another breach. And with that, she left the station, returning to the cryolancers who were finishing cleaning the core. A tag in her hazmat suit said that she was named to Sophie. You can let go of him, Sophie told the guard holding my shoulder. We'll take it from here. I recognized Sophie's voice. This was the woman who had led me through the decontamination process earlier, right after the bombing. The one with the soft and gentle tone. Look, whatever this is, if you think it's too risky, I'm more than fine leaving, I said. I don't want to be here. I know, Sophie said. And I'm sorry, but we have to try. You're Jason, right? Yes. Well, my name's Sophie. I'm a communications specialist at Frog Hollow. Now, Jason, I'm going to need you to be very brave for me, Okay. What you're about to do could save many lives. The whole power plant and beyond. Okay. Sophie led me to a windowless metal pod at the back of the computer station. It was about the size of an SUV. Various wires connected it to the computer terminal. I'm going in there. Yes, you'll be fine. I'm going in with you. I'll be right beside you. Once we were sealed inside, Sophie and I removed our hazmats. The pod was crammed with medical equipment. An articulated chair lay in its center, like the kind you would find in a dentist's office. It was almost fully reclined. Dozens of electrodes were attached to its sides. Sophie motioned to the chair. Lie down here. What is this? My whole body was shaking as I got into the chair. I sank deep into its plush leather cushions. We're going to patch you into the plant's core, Sophie said. This pod has highly specialized receptors. They can connect a human consciousness with ash. What? No, I don't want to talk to what's in there. I know and I'm sorry. Sophie placed my right finger into a pulse oximeter and then she began attaching the electrodes to my forehead and scalp using a cold gel. But you won't have to say anything. All I need for you to do is relax and keep your mind open. We'll do all the communication on our end. Then why don't you sit in this chair? Oh, it's not that simple, Sophie said. We need a human conduit who's had contact with the demon. You had direct contact with a thrall. Somebody that's under Ash's control. Uh, Colton? Yes. Is he going to be alright? Honestly, I don't know. Sophie finished placing the electrodes on my body. My scalp tingled. Normally, we would use someone specially trained for this kind of thing. Someone who's had experience in small regular doses of a demonic contact while entering a meditative state. You mean the techno priest? yes i couldn't believe such a job really existed in my mind i pictured somebody in flowing robes embroidered with the circuit board logo i felt that i had to ask the next question though i dreaded its answer what did Yumiko mean when she said that the techno priests were out of commission sophie checked a heart monitor nearby it tracked my vital signs They're too tired to sit in this chair, she said. Her voice was slightly different, less certain. She was lying. Your heart rate's elevated, Jason. Well, yeah, duh, I'm terrified. Can you get somebody else to do this, please? I asked. I'm sorry, Jason, Sophie said. The transmission will feel strange, but it will only last a minute. And I'll be right by your side the whole time. In case anything bad happens, okay? She looked at me with a soft expression, her crystal blue eyes watering. She's terrified too. Okay. Sophie pressed an intercom button inside the pod. We're clear. She checked my vitals one more time and then said, Now lie back and relax and it'll be over before you know it. I smirked. Yeah, famous last words. Sophie pulled a lever and the tingling in my scalp intensified. And then i felt a wave of heat spread across my head like my hair was on fire i tried to scream but nothing came out my jaw wouldn't open my arms and legs wouldn't move i was paralyzed it was like a waking nightmare and then things got really really strange i was standing in a boggy swamp my legs frozen in place giant insects crowded the humid air There were moss-covered trees and dark brown water in all directions. Booming animal calls echoed in the distance. The noises were loud and resonant. They reminded me of giant birds. A huge creature with red and green pebbled skin lumbered through the murky surroundings on forest-out legs. It was headed my way. It took me a moment to realize what it was. My eyes widened in fear and awe. It was a dinosaur one of those massive but docile herbivores that i had seen in countless science documentaries only this one was real i could smell its musky odor feel the vibration of its thunderous footsteps Dream or nightmare this was the most incredible sight that i had ever witnessed until something even more magnificent surpassed it a prismatic light passed by overhead I looked up and saw an ethereal creature floating through the treetops its iridescent body was so faint that it took me a moment to realize that it was an actual being and not just a trick of the light the creature resembled a translucent manta ray hovering over the swamp the nearby dino paid no attention i felt like i was the only one who could see the spirit It gazed down at me with dozens of shiny eyes shining like tiny stars. As it did, I heard a soft voice in my head, as gentle as a summer breeze. Hello, Jason. You know my name. I'm in your mind and you are in mine. Ash, for some reason I didn't feel any fear. The being seemed to radiate calmness. I felt like I could stand in that swamp for years. Where am I? My past. A sudden bright flash overtook the swamp. I didn't move from my spot, but now I was standing in a frozen wasteland riddled with ash and snow. The sky was covered in thick dark clouds, blocking almost all the sunlight out. But still, the spirit hovered above. It flapped its mighty wings and moved the clouds, allowing for warm sunlight to reach the ground. A tiny plant sprouted in the sunlit patch. I have watched over this plot of earth for longer than you could ever comprehend. Another flash. I was standing on an icy tundra. Woolly mammoths wandered in the distance. They followed the spirit, it was leading them to a bubbling stream nearby. Another flash. I was in a temperate rainforest full of huge trees and colorful fungus. A bonfire glowed nearby. People and animal furs danced around the flames, chanting in strange tongues and pointing towards the glowing spirit above them. Another flash. I stood at the bottom of a huge black pit. Mining excavators dug deeper and deeper into the earth. I looked around for the spirit, but it was no longer there. There was nothing living in sight just dirt and machines until i was wrenched from it the excavator's bucket struck something hard the machine readjusted around the buried object digging at its sides and then it lifted out a giant chunk of glowing stone it had the same shimmery iridescence as the floating spirit i saw earlier the stone radiated tremendous energy It washed over the excavator in tremendous waves, causing the machine's computers to short out. Another flash. I was inside a steel box alongside the glowing stone. Blasts of fire hit the stone from tubes up above, causing the object to release more and more energy. They realized I could provide them with boundless energy, But with each ounce siphoned off, I lost more and more of myself. In the corner, I saw the spirit. Once a shimmering creature of beauty, it now resembled a cancerous blob of bubbling tar. Its tiny star eyes had turned into fiery coals. They burned red, blood red, rage red. I felt its rage surging through me, burning up my soul. There's a button on the computer terminal outside your pod. It's big and red, and you can't miss it. One more big flash and... I opened my eyes. Blinking away the tears, everything was bright and blurry. Somebody stood over me. Jason, Jason! It was Sophie. She had sprayed something into my lungs with a large inhaler. I gasped myself awake, heart pounding. What? What? I was back in the pod. My scalp burned. Sophie had ripped the electrodes off of my head, taking some of my hair with them. What happened? You went into convulsions for a few seconds when I switched on the transceiver, Sophie said. I had to do a hard border, you would have entered a coma. Sorry about the spray, the adrenaline's just to pull you out. But I was speaking to it, I said. That's not possible, Sophie said. We hadn't even established a full connection yet. It was. I wanted to say beautiful and then terrifying and then enraging. I saw it. I saw Ash. You were hallucinating. Sophie helped me back into my hazmat and then she suited up herself. The pod door unsealed with a pneumatic kiss. We stepped out. What the heck happened? Yumiko was waiting for us outside. She looked pissed. He started seizing immediately, Sophie said. Could he still establish a connection? I'm not going to kill him just so we can get a baseline for what's going on in there. We could all die if we don't know what it's thinking. Yumiko was shouting now. She and Sophie continued arguing but I no longer paid them any attention. I was laser focused on that big red button. It was unmarred sitting at the far end of the computer terminal just a couple feet away almost within reach and there was nobody else around the techno priest will be here soon well that could be too late we don't even know if he can jason i had raised my hand over the button about to slam my palm down on its shiny red surface what are you doing no one moved Yumiko, Sophie, all the scientists and guards, everybody stared at me in abject terror. It wasn't a demon. It was a nature spirit and it only wanted to help living things. Jason, you press that button and we all die, Sophie said, trying and failing to keep her voice calm. It wants to destroy us. Well, of course it does, my body shook. I felt the horror that you put it through. A deep, unwavering rage clouded my thoughts, a desire for revenge. Somewhere in the back of my mind, I wondered, was I a thrall now like Colton? My hand remained above the button. One of the guards raised a rifle at me, finger on the trigger. Wait! A familiar voice stayed my hand. Someone in a hazmat suit had just entered the cavern accompanied by more guards. It took me a moment to see her face through the plastic face shield. Abby? Don't do it. What are you doing here? I asked. The boss wanted her. One of the guards accompanying Abby said. I looked at Yumiko. She was still standing beside the communication pod. Were you going to plug her into that thing next? Yumiko sighed and then nodded. She would have turned Abby into a thrall too and for what? to keep some stupid power plant running. My hand inched closer to the big red button. Jason, please, Yumiko said. I'm sorry that we forced you into this. We won't put either of you in the pot, I swear. Just step away from the terminal. Why'd you do it? Do what? That. I motioned to the core, its metal surface was steaming. Ash can solve the world's energy crisis. That core alone can power the entire eastern seaboard, Yumiko said. And it doesn't even release greenhouse gases. All the smoke you see outside, it's water vapor. What about the toxins released into the water supply? Toxins? There's no evidence of any toxins, Yumiko said. That was from the old plant, before we switched. We saw the fungus growing outside, Abby said. It was in the storm drains leading to this place. You say that ash can solve the world's energy crisis, but that's only if you can keep it under control. It is a challenge, I'll admit, Yumiko said, but it's one worth taking. Look at the insurmountable odds facing our planet's future. We're destroying it faster than we ever thought possible, and we still depend on fossil fuels. With this... She pointed to the plant's core. We can leave them all behind in one fell swoop. You don't know what you're dealing with, I said. And you don't even know this place existed until an hour ago, Yumiko said. Suddenly you're an expert on the topic. No, but I know this is beyond our understanding. He's right, Abby said. I think it's safe to say you haven't done a good job controlling Ash's power if one minor outage could cause all of this. Yumiko scoffed, but there were murmurs of agreement among the gathered scientists, especially Sophie. No one spoke aloud, but I could see the tide shifting. Maybe we take a step back and... Ah, I was thrown to the floor with my hands forced behind my back. Apparently one of the guards had snuck up behind me while I was talking. That was how I ended up where I am today, sitting inside a quarantine facility far beneath the Arizona desert. I've been here for months now. They claim it's to study my body and mind to make sure that there are no latent traces of ash still in me. Supposedly they contacted my parents. I can only imagine how pissed they are now. The scientists have refused to let me speak with them directly for fear that... I might contaminate their minds. Emiko claims they've vastly increased the security at Frog Hollow since that fateful night. They moved the plant core deeper underground, adding more walls and written spells to quell its rage. And they've decreased the core's capacity. They're starting small now, gradually working their way to more power, so the scientists claim. And Sophie's leading the charge. I wonder how she really feels about the project now if it will ever be safe a total of 50 employees lost their lives the night that we snuck in according to the general public all of them died in a massive transformer explosion it was supposedly an accident brought on by a random power surge the company has already paid tens of millions in life insurance and there are still lawsuits in the works i hope they bankrupt the place Well, at least I'm not alone. Abby and Colton are down here with me. They're in separate quarantine cells, but close enough that we can hear each other through the walls. We trade stories about the strange tests they run, the random questionnaires about nature, the strange MRI-like machines they run our bodies through every day. Each time the scientists jot down notes and we ask how we did, they always respond with the same two words. Results, inconclusive. We're never getting out of here. Abby told me the other night. Isn't that right, Cole? I'm okay, Colton said. It was one of his go-to responses. While Abby sounds like she's mostly recovered from her ordeal, Colton has almost become a mute. His answers are always brief, usually just a few words. I feel fine. It's cold down here. When are we leaving? Whenever Abby or I ask him about the bomb or Ash or the horrors in the ventilation room, his answer remains the same. I don't remember. Is he really suffering from amnesia, or does he just not want to relive those memories? Abby thinks the thine-out procedure damaged his brain. If he truly can't remember that night, then I envy him. I would give anything to forget Frog Hollow. They said it'll just be another week, I told Abby, and then we can go home. Yeah, they said that last week. True, but at least the tests are getting shorter. Perhaps that means they are finding less and less residue in our systems. I doubt that, Abby said. I don't think this has to do with contamination. I haven't heard Ash's voice in a week. Then why keep us here? Well, because we know too much, no matter how many NDAs they force us to sign. There was a long pause. Then Abby added, I think they already told our parents that we're dead. Don't say that. What, it's the only explanation, Abby said, unless you're still hearing things. No, I told her, but that wasn't quite true. I no longer heard Ash's voice calling out to me. But each night I had the same vivid dream. I still have it now. The demon core breaks open releasing a gray black smoke. This smoke rises up through the earth enveloping the frog hollow power plant causing its towers to crumble. And then it spreads across our hometown covering every building, every person, every animal, every plant. The gray black smoke continues moving, blanketing the rest of our stage and beyond. And it stays like this for centuries, millennia, eons, choking out all life. And finally, once everything is turned to dust, the smoke evaporates, leaving behind a world reborn. Alien grows sprout from the ashen ground, lighting up the night sky with their calming glow. I don't know what this dream signifies, but it absolutely terrifies me. Not just because of all the death and destruction such an event would cause. Because a part of me secretly hopes that it will come true. Perhaps I'll have to stay down here a little while longer. End transmission. Thank you all for listening to this week's episode. I hope that you enjoyed it. Wherever you may be in the world, I hope that you're staying safe and sound. And as always, stay creepy.